Green Room on Air. Green Room on Air. The podcast that takes you beyond the velvet curtains and into the pulsating heart of the entertainment world. Hi, folks. This is Ray Renati, and you have reached Green Room on Air, my little space in the internet. Hello, friends, Romans, countrymen's. Thank you for lending me your ears, as Shakespeare would have said, if he had a podcast, which he didn't have, because he's been dead for four or five five hundred years, but we'll do our best. Um, Now, I'm not a sponsor for this uh, Zero, but they are cool electric motorcycles. And if you ever get a chance to drive one, ride one, do it. I did it. It was fun. Very fun. An electric motorcycle. Think about that. Anyway, today I would like to talk about Stephen Sondheim. But before that, I want to tell you something. If you haven't seen Fargo, the TV show, not the movie, which the movie is wonderful too, but the TV show, which I think is in five or six seasons, go watch it. If you got Hulu, you can see it. And if you, you can get Hulu for pretty cheap if you're willing to watch a few commercials. Oh, my hair is getting in my face. There we go. Um, it's, it's just... It's just so wonderfully Cohen Brothers. It's dark and I- ironic and funny and sadistic and everything you want from a good Cohen Brothers work. So go check that out. Two, four, six, eight thumbs up, as many thumbs as one can muster. Now, uh, I'd like to talk about Stephen Sondheim, and I'm. I've been going through an article here that's uh, in the New York Times today. Now, just so you know, for me, Stephen Sondheim is the modern-day Shakespeare, truly. Stephen Sondheim has done, for what I, in my estimation, what Shakespeare did for theater in the 16th hundreds um and what he's done ever since Stephen Sondheim will go down as one of the great geniuses of the English speaking theater world I guarantee it um now he did musicals of course not straight plays but not only was he a good book writer in the, in the script as evidenced by West Side Story one of the shows where he wrote the book and it's amazing. But moreover, his musicianship and his, com- his abilities as a composer are unmatched. Now, he can write songs that you'll go out of the theater singing and they'll stick in your head, just like uh, some of the classic musical theater artists. Uh, and he can also write music that you won't remember how to sing, but it will affect you deep into your soul. And the thing about Stephen Sondheim that makes him so unique is that he was able to take music and write it in such a way that it fit perfectly with the words. And if there was a nuance in the words, in the script that the actor was singing or saying that had to be colored in a certain way, he knew how to change the notes in unexpected ways that would draw attention to the nuance in the human experience. Uh, 
in in a way that no other composer that I've ever experienced has been able to do. Um, now that's my opinion of Stephen Sondheim. Let's take a look at what Joshua Barone, or I don't know how he says his name, Joshua Barone of the New York Times says. So um, as I'm getting used to setting up this thing here for video, I'm going to have to be looking over there to read. I think maybe what I'm going to do is eventually use my laptop so it'll look like I'm looking straight at you. But this is going to have to do today. Um, so this article in today's New York Times is entitled, Stephen Sondheim Belongs in the Pantheon of American Composers. Sondheim was a titan of musical theater, as we all know, but four recent shows on stage in New York argue for his place among classic music luminaries, too. So not just musical theater, but opera, mostly, and all the other great classical styles of music. And let, let's take a look at why he thinks that old, good old Joshua Barone or Barone, or Barone, I don't know. You know, I had the idealistic notion when I was 20 that I was going into the theater, Stephen Sondheim once said. I wasn't. I was going into show business, and I was a fool to think otherwise. <laughs> it was a remark characteristic of Sondheim the titan of musical theater, whose decades' worth of credits as a composer and lyricist include West Side Story, Company, and Into the Woods. Here he was, as many had seen him in interviews over the years, unsentimental and a bit flip, self-effacing to the point of selling himself short. Interesting. Yes, he thought he was going into the theater but he was going in to show business, and he was a fool to think otherwise. Classic Sondheim. Very uh, reminiscent of, uh, of how he might write uh, a lyric. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people who have made it big were artists first, and then all of a sudden realized they were in show business, and they weren't ready for that. And I think that's what he's saying. Now... West Side Story, Company, Into the Woods. I love all three of those plays. I think West Side Story is the best musical ever written in the English language. Um, Company is a great show. And Into the Woods is absolutely innovative and hilarious. And if you ever get a chance to see them, if you haven't, go see them. Um, because among musical theater artists of his generation, Sondheim, who died in in 2021 at 91 and i was fortunate enough to participate in a uh, a cabaret show in san francisco a couple of years ago giving tribute to um steven sondheim and we sang a number of his songs and it was uh, it was very moving he was arguably the most artistic challenging unusual incapable of super Fisciality in a medium often dismissed as superficial, which musical theater often is. He was perhaps, to his disappointment, not the best businessman with, with shows that rarely lasted long on Broadway, and his work was better for it. Interesting. That's what Joshua Barone thinks, and I agree. 
Sondheim has always had a dedicated fan base, but right now his musicals are true hot tickets with substantial real estate on New York stages. Recently, it was possible to take in four Sondheim shows in a single weekend, Merrily We Roll Along, and Sweeney Todd on Broadway. Now, I, I hate to say this, but I have never seen Merrily We Roll Along, but I've heard it's absolutely wonderful, and I want to see it. And if I could go to New York to see it, that would be even better. Now, Sweeney Todd, along with West Side Story and Ragtime, which isn't a Sondheim musical, but Sweeney Todd and West Side Story are two of my top three uh, musical pieces in the canon of musical theater. Sweeney Todd, to me, is beyond excellent. It's beyond anything that we have short of West Side Story. Um, it's dark. It's funny. The music is absolutely chilling and beautiful. And it will last forever. That's my opinion. <laughs> um, the Frogs, in a, uh, a starry concert presentation by Master Voices, and here we are, his unfinished work completed and in its premiere run at the shed. Now, I think these are off-Broadway, I'm pretty sure. The Frogs, and here we are. Now, I haven't seen either of those either. Together, they form a portrait that helps in considering Sondheim's place among American composers. I say American because Broadway, alongside jazz, is the most homegrown of this country's music and is his work constantly pushed the art form further. Where so many of his colleagues have operated within standard structures, he, even in writing a 32-bar song, seemed to always ask, what else is possible? What else is possible? That's a perfect way of putting it. And let me give you an example. There will be a phrase in a Sondheim song. That the, the first iteration of the phrase will be maybe what you expect in terms of the scales and, and the notes. And then the second phrase, as the, as the character's attitude changes slightly, Sondheim will change one note in the perfect spot that corresponds to that emotional shift. And it feels like genius. It feels like you're singing genius. It truly does. It's also important to consider Sondheim as a distinctly American com composer because his writing reflects a creative mind repeatedly fixated on the idea of his homeland with an ambivalence by turns affectionate and acerbic. It's there in his lyric contribution to Gypsy, arguably the greatest American musical. Interesting. You know, you could make the argument that Gypsy is the greatest American musical. Listen to Rose's Turn, the song Rose's Turn, and you'll know just from that. It's, it's, Gypsy is huge. It's a great musical, um, which the musicologist Raymond Knapp has described as a version of the American dream that leads as if inevitably, to strip tease. And it continues with an unconventional patriotism in Assassins, which is also a great show, and a revealing journey across state lines and years 
in Roadshow. No, I, I'm not familiar with Roadshow, and that's one that I need to, to, to learn about. Um, assassins is about uh, all of the different assassins who have attacked uh, presidents and other people, uh, I think just presidents in, in the United States, and tried to kill them or did kill them. Um, it kind of sounds kind of dark, but it's a great show. In that sense, Sondheim is not only one of the finest American composers, but also one of the most essential. He and Lenny are at the top of that list. Leonard Bernstein, Paul G. Uh, Geminiani, Sondheim's longtime musical director, said, referring also to Leonard Bernstein. Most Broadway composers are writing pop tunes. Steve never wrote a pop tune. Paul says, send in the clowns got lucky. Send in the clowns. Isn't it grand? I don't remember the, all the words. But you have heard this song many times. And it got lucky as a pop song. <laughs> Sondheim seemed fated to create musical theater at a higher level than his colleagues. Like Bernstein, he was pedigreed. His mother for lyric writing was Oscar Hammerstein II of Rogers and Hammerstein. <clears throat> Let me try that again. <laughs> I need to clean off my glasses. I can't read the screen. And I'm going to leave this in. I'm not going to even edit it out because this is reality, folks. This is me screwing up, stumbling over my words, being human. And we all need to be, be human. I'm going to use my other glasses. See, I'm old. Look at that. See, I'm old and I'm going blind. And then suddenly, it will be easier to read. Man, I tell you, getting old ain't for pussies. Let me just tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Sondheim seemed fated to create musical theater at a higher level than his colleagues. Like Bernstein, he was pedigreed. His mentor for lyric writing was Oscar Hammerstein II of Rogers and Hammerstein. I can't remember if it's Hammerstein or Hammerstein, so please forgive me all Hammerstein, Hammerstein aficionados. For composition, the modernist Milton Babbitt, yet he emulated neither. So his, his mentors were Hammerstein and Milton Babbitt, and, but he did not write anything in the way that they wrote. His, his, his style was all his own. In an interview with Sondheim Review, Sondheim said that he was trained by Hammerstein to think of songs as one-act plays, to move a song from point A to point B dramatically. But he thought of them in more classical terms, sonata form, statement, development, and recapitulation. Interesting. So each song is a story in and of itself. A little play, if you will. And while Sondheim composed with the spirit of an avant-garde, avant-gardist, an avant-gardist, he was more of a post-modernist than Babbitt, though he described Babbitt as a closet songwriter who admired Kern and Arlen as much as Mozart and Schoenberg. The first hour of each of our weekly sessions would be devoted to analyzing a song like All the Things That You Are, Sondheim recalled. The next three to Jupiter, uh, the next three to 
to the Jupiter Symphony, always concentrating on the tautness of the structures, the leanness and the frugality of the musical ideas. Genre didn't matter. Craft did. That's interesting. Genre didn't matter. Craft did. Craft, art, preciseness, specificity. Craft did, which is why one of their most influential lessons entailed how a Bach fugue built, as Babbitt put it, an entire cathedral from a four-note theme. Sondheim would later do the same in the score of Anyone Can Whistle, another show I haven't seen. As a university student, Sondheim wrote some juvenilia. Oh, wow, what a word. Ding, ding, ding. That's a, that's a ding word. As a lyricist composer. Most intriguingly, fragments of Mary Poppins' musical that predates the Disney movie by over a decade. But, what's that? There was a Mary Poppins movie before the Disney one? I didn't know that. Oh, musical. There was a Mary Poppins musical that predates the Disney movie. Interesting. I'll have to look that up. But after a false start, his first professional credit was as the lyricist on West Side Story. Now, I've heard Sondheim say that he was not at all happy with his work on West Side Story. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? <laughs> Gypsy followed with music by Jules, Julie Stein. But it uh, wasn't until a funny thing happened on the way to the forum that Broadway saw its first show with both music and lyrics by Sondheim. Wow, what a great show that is, too. Great, great, wonderful show. All of these are just classics, just gems. I'm telling you, folks, he's our Shakespeare. He is. I won't be here 100 years from now, but people will be saying that. He was often asked which came first, the music or the lyrics. The most accurate answer is probably sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both, but with the deference to clarity of text. Clarity, clarity. In acting, clarity is most important. Specificity, most important. Songwriting, most important. Like Wagner, who wrote the librettos of his operas, Sondheim wanted his lyrics to be heard and understood. His vocal lines resemble those of Janacek and Debussy, whose dramas unfurl with the rhythm of speech. Yes. Yes. Our author here agrees with me, Joshua Barone. See, where was I? Okay. Oh, look at this wonderful picture. Anyway, um, Sondheim's most prolific and ambitious period began with the concept musical Company and his collaborations with the eminent producer and director Hal Prince. Uh, Gemignani said that together, they never compromised on bringing their ideas to life. It was during this period that Sondheim emerged as a postmodernist in the vein of John Adams, with a deep well of references presented with a wink of sincerity, but above all, with dramaturgical purpose. I love that. They never compromised on bringing their ideas to life. They never compromised. Think about that. How many of us compromise when we do our work? Most of us, I think. They never did. That's, that's hard. That's the hard choice. But he took the hard choices. 
and it paid off. That might, that, that might be why Follies, that might be why Follies, <laughs> that might be why Follies from 1971 has been called a post-musical musical. Oh, Follies. Okay. Oh, gosh, about 10 years ago, I went and saw Follies on Broadway with Bernadette Peters. And um, it was one of the most magical moments of my life. It was uh, life-changing. And I think it's because the actors gave 110% to the show every moment and they completely grabbed Sondheim's words and his music and made it their own and made sure that we got it. And it touched us. And I got to sit next to Martin Short. <laughs> that might be why Follies from 1971 has been called a post-musical musical. Its score abounds in pastiche. What is... Losing My Mind, the song, if not a Gershwin tune from an alternative universe. Always losing my mind. And again, I forgot the words. But it's a wonderful song. And uh, artful irony, such as the dissonances that betray the darker truth of the road you didn't take, which melody I don't remember, so I won't sing it. <laughs> For Pacific Overtures in 1976, Sondheim took a similar approach to Puccini in uh, Turandot by putting authentic sounds, in this case, kabuki music, through its own idiomatic prism. But like Puccini, he suggests, rather than represents, unable to escape a Western perspective while purportedly telling a story from a Japanese point of view. It's a contradiction that doesn't serve the musical as well as the more globalist style of Someone in a Tree, a song that brought a simplistic American minimalism to Broadway. Inspired by the spareness of Japanese visual art. Now, I love Japanese art because of the spareness. You know, the subject of, of a Japanese piece of art might be a little guy down in the right-hand corner, and the rest of it is like open space, something we don't do in Western art so much. Maybe photographers do. Inspired by the spareness of Japanese visual art, Sondheim composed an analog in a song that does little more than develop a song chord over and over. As Philip Glass and Stephen Reich were applying a world music sensibility to the classical sphere, Sondheim wrote his own kind of repetitive phase music. It's not so insignificant that when I met Steve Reich, Sondheim later wrote, he told me how much he loved this show. So that's another style that Sondheim embraced. He was on culturally sure ground with a little night music. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful show in 1973, in which the idea of variations applied to waltz-like melodies in three. Absolutely. The, the, the show is full of waltzes. Um, but you don't sit there thinking, oh, another waltz. You never think that. But then when you think back and you listen to it, yeah, it's based on waltz. So I'm telling you, the guy's a genius. He wrote that his favorite form was the theme and variations, and that he respected Rachmaninoff's rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. This musical 
came closer to that piece than anything else Sondheim wrote, with a hint of Sibelius. Now, a lot of these things I don't understand. I don't know who Sibelius was. Sondheim's sound, like that of any good postmodernist, was both consistent and chameleonic. Wow, another ding word. Like a chameleon. (laughs) Never more so than in Sweeney Todd, which displays his genius and misguided musical beliefs in equal measure. Yay. Aside from passion in 1994... It is Sondheim's most operatic work in sensibility and craft, yet he bristled at the idea of Sweeney Todd being called an opera or an operetta and once wrote that when Porgy and Bess was performed on Broadway, it was a musical. When it was performed at uh, Glyndebourne and Covent Garden, it was an opera. That's not true. It was always an opera and played on Broadway at a time when many operas did, like... um, Kurt Weill, Kurt Weill's operas, Three Penny Opera, The Rise and Fall, The City of Mahagoni, they also did. Um, I did see San Francisco Opera perform Sweeney Todd, and it was wonderful. The most interesting thing about that was the people who had only done opera in their life, uh, I couldn't really understand what they were singing, and so they had the libretto up on the on the on on the 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 super whatever they call it on the words on the wall, so you could read it. But there were two opera singers who also had done a lot of musical theater, and I understood every word they said. So there's two different styles of singing going on there. And I found that quite interesting. But it worked very well as an opera. So, you know, um, Steve has his opinions, but I, I think it worked as an opera. All told, all told, Sweeney is a hybrid music theater, one that brings in yet another medium, cinema. And if you see the... Um, the Johnny Depp version of Sweeney, you'll get that. They changed a lot of it, but I still love it. A lot of musical theater enthusiasts just cannot stand the Sweeney Todd movie musical because of the fact that parts of, of the of the show were changed. But you have to look at it as a different piece, and it works just wonderfully as a movie. <clears throat> Um, Sondheim believed that, with all due respect, John Williams is responsible for Jaws, not Steven Spielberg. (laughs) So John Williams is the composer. We've all heard that in Jaws, right? Every time we go swimming in the ocean now, if you do that anymore, after seeing Jaws, that sound enters your mind. And you are sure that you are going to be eaten, eaten up by a great white shark. (laughs) His score for Sweeney is similarly rich with edge of your seat underscoring while the lyrics are both ingenious and inherently melodic. Yes, the underscoring. Like when Sweeney's about to cut someone's throat. There's this sound. Almost like, you know, I wonder if, um, I wonder if they got that, interesting, it reminds me of, uh, what's the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Um, Psycho, hmm, interesting, interesting, Sondheim was proud of the opening line of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd, and rightfully so, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. 
That's the opening line. I love to sing that. I'll do it again. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. <laughs> it sets a mood of theatrical artifice and anachronism with a piercing consonance in the T's as unsettling as Nabokov's tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth in Lolita. Here, it must be said that the sound of Sondheim would not be such without a crucial collaborator, Jonathan Tunick, his orchestrator to this day. Well, I don't know about to this day since Sondheim is gone, but anyway, I guess he's still orchestrating Sondheim's musicals. The scores of all four shows I recently attended were arranged by him. Ah, I see. Okay. <laughs> Sondheim composed at his piano then sang through while accompanying himself. From there, Tunic teased out the textures of his playing into entire instrumental ensembles. I've never, I, I never ceased to be amazed by these composers who were able to listen to somebody play a piano and then write all of the parts for all of the pieces in an orchestra. It just blows my mind. In an interview, Tunic said, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I don't know. Tunic, Tunic, Tunique, Tunok, Tun, Ike. I don't know. Tunic said that you can't overthink the process. I was able to tell a great deal, not only from the actual notes, but from the way he played them, he added. The way he phrased, the way he attacked a chord. He described the transformation as, more than anything, Dionysian. Another ding word. At its fullest, the arrangement on Broadway now, the Sweeney score abounds in colorful flourishes and bone-rattling horror. I got to get out there and see this. The fluttering in the winds in one song, as delicate as the low brasses are chilling at the start of Epiphany. Sweeney's big song, Epiphany. If Sweeney reflects a worldview a pretty dismal one, that speaks to America only allegorically. A more direct view of the country emerges in later works. Merrily We Roll Along comments obliquely on the period of history it covers, with the space-age promise of Sputnik giving way to cynical neoliberalism. And American themes are even more overt in the shows that brought, the Sondheim, that brought Sondheim back together with John Weidman the book writer of Pacific Overtures, Assassins in 1990, and Roadshow, a troubled musical that went through the multiple revisions and titles before premiering in its final form in 2008. Both shows are flawed. Roadshow structurally and Assassins for its disturbing pageant of mental illness. Yes, as I described earlier. But they reflect the promise and tragedy of the American dream. And isn't don't a lot of our great classical writers and novels and poetry and theater and musicals in the United States somehow have a take on the American dream and the fall of the American dream? Think about that. I think they do. John Steinbeck, Arthur Miller. I could go on. Assassins goes so far as to propose another national anthem which reads as a litany of disenfranchisement from a cast of characters 
who all feel let down by a system that was supposed to work for them. It's not far from the complaints that fuel distrust of government today and the rise of Donald J. Trump. Interesting. So these characters and assassins, these crazy mentally ill people, are simply people who feel disenfranchised, as many Trump followers do today, and that's, that's why he has gained such popularity. More barbed yet is here we are in its send-up of elitism and the privilege of both apathy and revolt. I don't know this show, here we are. <clears throat> I need water, but that means I'd have to go up and get it. <laughs> For better and worse, the score has a valedictorian spirit, a valedictory spirit. God, this guy uses big ding words. For better and worse... The score has a valedictory spirit, recalling earlier work without quoting it exactly, and the lyrics contain satirical observations that wouldn't be out of place in company. My generation of theater fans came of age loving Into the Woods, the author's generation of theater fans. My generation of theater fans came of age loving into the Woods, which because of its enduring popularity as theater for children, will remain on stage far into the future. Yes, it's, a, it's about uh, Cinderella and Jack and the Beanstalk and all these children's stories, but adults will love it as well, and that's why it'll last forever in the canon of a musical theater, because children will be doing this forever. <clears throat> But uh, the Sondheim works most likely to last from a purely musical perspective are those that least readily show their age and happen to be classically, uh, classical leaning, happen to be classical leaning and postmodern. Follies is timeless. It is. Follies is timelessly Broadway. A little night music, universally elegant. Send in the clouds. Sweeney, perennially effective. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Gemignani, also called Sweeney, sometimes Porgy and Bess. <laughs> like that show, it is played in Broadway theaters and opera houses alike. And like Porgy and Bess, it is the masterpiece of a great American composer. And I agree with that 100 and 10%. Thank you so much for listening today, folks. I enjoyed that, even though my throat is parched, and I'm having trouble getting any words out. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, I hope I made it understandable, even though you're not seeing me, which may be good. A good thing. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming and listening. And if you enjoyed this, please tell your friends. Smash the like button, as they say, and subscribe so you know when I have new episodes here of Green Room on Air. And if you're listening on the podcast, please uh, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give me five-star rating. Five-star. You will give me a five-star rating. Okay, I'm hypnotizing you. All right, folks, thanks so much for coming again. And until next time. I will see you on the boards.
Arrivederla. Ciao, bella.